Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I stress encourage community because I believe that we human beings are friendly, collaborative, tribal animals. And when we associate with one enough and one another in small enough groups where we know everybody by name, or at least by face. We love to do things together. We cooperate with one another, whether it's sewing circles or watching ball games or playing together, uh, eating together. We love to eat together in circles and sit around and have fun and enjoy. Human beings are tribal. We love to be with one another. We like to collaborate, cooperate. At the very same time, it's imperative that we remind ourselves that there is a small percentage of us who are very different. They are avaricious predators. They have been with us right from the beginning. They are part of who we are, and we must stay aware of them. These are the people who, when we came out of caves, were the strong men in the cave. They became the kings, and then they became the head of countries, and in many cases, they became actual kings. They then connected with the church, as you know, and they ruled by what was called divine right. And they ruled the rest of us, and they called us subjects. But over a couple of hundred years ago, our country became the first country since the Greeks and the Romans experimented with democracy. And we overthrew the king, and we turned against their ruling by divine right, and we became citizens. And it's our task now to maintain this democracy and this republic. It's not a given that we have forever. It's a fragile document. It's a fragile way of living. Democracy, one person, one vote. Republic, everyone equal before the law. To maintain it, we must stay aware. And I implore you all who listen to spread the word of the importance of staying aware. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Charlie Grobe. Dr. Charlie Grobe, psychiatrist and scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles for many years, is one of the founding fathers of the psychedelic renaissance. His work has been seminal. Go to Google, research Dr. Charlie Grobe, find out about him, and certainly listen to other YouTubes, other interviews, in addition to the one you're going to hear today. I had the privilege of interviewing Charlie, I think back in 2005. We're looking for that archive. I know I interviewed him after his groundbreaking seminal research that was published in 2010. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Charlie. Uh, it's good to see you again, Richard. It's been a while. It's been a while. Too long. But we'll see each other soon, as we discussed in June at the MAPS conference in Denver, Colorado, this June. Uh, that's right. I, I wouldn't miss it for anything. I wouldn't either. 
Where to begin with you? The two topics that I'd like to focus on the most today are end of life, end of life healing with with psychedelics, and depression and anxiety in general with psychedelics. We need we need a lot more work, and we need a lot more research. I know that, but I want you to share some of your insights going back over the years with regard to, oh, there was one other topic I just missed too that I want to discuss, very important today, in addition to the end of life, anxiety, and depression. I want to discuss adverse effects with you, and there's a reason for that. I feel I'm going to be, I'm doing a book on adverse effects of psychedelics, and the reason I'm doing it, Charlie, and I know you're in favor of it, is because as we well know, the pharmaceutical companies do their best to hide their negative effects. You know that, I know that. And I think it's our responsibility in this new wave of psychedelic science and research to do just the opposite, to be totally transparent, to tell the public everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I want to talk to you about adverse effects today. Let's talk about end of life first, because that is a topic that's on everybody's mind. Great. Well, let me first say that the the work we did, we drew heavily on the research conducted by the previous generation of investigators, as I call them, the, the pioneer generation of psychedelic researchers, Stan Groff and, and his contemporaries, and even those older. So the, the, the use of a psychedelic treatment model for people uh, experiencing significant anxiety approaching the end of life really started in the early 60s with uh, Eric Cast, a physician in Chicago who was a pain specialist and who around 1960 heard of a an unusual and novel compound that had been discovered and synthesized by Sandoz Pharmaceuticals in Basel, Switzerland. And in those days, you didn't need a protocol. You didn't need to go through an elaborate regulatory process to get a hold of experimental drugs. All you needed to do was write to the manufacturer and inform them that you were an investigator, that this is what you wanted to look at, and could they please send you a, an ample supply of whatever material it was that, they, that you were interested in. So this is what Cass did. He got a, uh, he got a big bottle of, of LSD-25 in, in the mail with no, no instructions, no guidelines to speak of. So he just went around when he saw his patients in the hospital, gave each of his patients a pill and said, look, this is a new drug. We don't know much about it, but why don't you take it later today? And tomorrow when I make my rounds, you can tell me what it did. So that's what happened. And But, you know, Cass, on hearing the reports of his patients, quickly realized that they're there had to be a better way to administer the drug, a more controlled and a safer way. He did some consultation with some psychiatrists who had worked with with LSD and related compounds and and, and learned very quickly the the, the importance of optimizing set and setting to to facilitate the, the best possible outcome and the least likelihood of severe adverse effects. So with set, it was you know the person's psychological disposition, how they're prepared for the experience, and what is their intention. I think this is a very important issue. What is the intention of someone wishing to take a psychedelic? Does it have something to do with, with healing, a spiritual issue, 
need to answer a question, get some insight, or, or does it have to do simply with having fun, having a recreational experience? Because what that said is, is going to play a significant role in determining outcome. Setting then would be who you take it with, where you take it with, how well protected are you? Do, you? do you have provisions to handle unexpected occurrences like someone banging at the door? You want somebody straight with you and someone who could kind of take charge of a tough situation. So Cast understood this, understood how to administer the drug, and he went about treating a large series of patients with chronic, unremitting pain and found good results, very good, very impressive results on their amelioration of pain and their lessened need for narcotic pain medication. He also found improved mood, lessened anxiety, and improved overall quality of life. Now, a a colleague a few years later... Let me interrupt you, Charlie, before we go on, because what you're talking about, this uh, Eric Cass work, I want to point out, took place in 1964. And evidently what you were doing in the 2000s, early 2000s, was manifesting one of what you come up with, and I know you have in your work, sort of six principles that we're going to talk about later. And one of your principles is learn from the past. So you you were learning from the the past and what was going on there. Oh, exactly. I think we owe a great debt to the investigators from, you know, 60 years ago, uh, from that whole whole generation, as well as we have a lot to learn from the, the true author- the, 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 the authorities of amongst uh, indigenous native peoples who for whom u- utilizing plant psychedelics is a tradition that stretches back over millennia. And these are the people who kept the secrets alive, who, who, who kept the mysteries extent, while uh, in the face of terrible persecution by uh, often by the Euro- European invaders of the New World. Charlie, as, I, 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 one of the, of the many things I've learned from you, one of them is how much the indigenous people going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, knew about getting a person ready for the experience and then doing what we now call integrating work thereafter. Right. I had no right. idea that they did those right. such things. Yeah, it, it was all very well organized. There was the there was always a good reason to to have this experience. Whether it's a healing issue, an initiation issue, the 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 people were were prepared by the elders who had had vast experience. They were closely monitored during the experience. And in the days and weeks afterwards, they would process what they experienced. They would process what they saw. What were their visions? What stories did they tell? These were essentially visions with a theme, thematic visions with eyes closed, played out a story as if it were a waking dream. And for these people, this was the heart of the matter, to learn from these visions and to be instructed on whatever it was that you needed, uh, needed to understand. It's, it's really quite something to, to learn and to know that they did that. I also, you know, have learned from you how the conquistadors in the 17th century, who were Christians, really brutalized these people oh. for their beliefs and their use of these uh, special medicines. Oh, absolutely. In, in the year 1616, there was an edict from uh, Spanish authorities that any native person or any, <clears throat> any Spanish settler in the New World 
who would dare utilize these uh, the, these taboo plants for their for their own in a sense religious purpose that they were dabbling in heresy and they would be condemned with the harshest punishments of the Inquisition, which meant torture and a very painful death. I could. It was a very brutal um, uh, time for the uh, for for the native peoples and the uh, perpetrators were the. Uh, for the most part, the Spaniards and the Portuguese coming into the New World, conquering it, dominating it, and uh, taking control of the uh, the assets. I couldn't help drawing the connection between the way those people were brutalized for using the medicines and when and the way people in this country and around the world were brutalized in the '60s and '70s for the very exact same thing. Yeah, and often yeah, a, by yeah, yeah, a very sad legacy that we had. That our, our our contemporaries often, uh, th- through poor timing, poor luck, found themselves at the mercy of a, uh, a, 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 a of a fairly ve- venal state or venal policy that uh, uh, engaged in very very harsh punitive acts. And for what now we look back on as as uh, as as not necessarily problematic. In fact, the same behavior that people were severely punished years ago is now being legalized in, in many cities and states around the country. So you're telling us how in your, in your early research uh, in, in, the, uh, in the 2000s, you were, you were quite knowledgeable about the work of Cast and of Walter Pankey in 69. Well, oh, and Pankey, a, a very important player, a psychiatrist at Harvard, also a, had a doctorate of uh, divinity from the Harvard uh, School of Divinity. He he came up with this. Uh, he had the observation that his subject, his patients who had advanced cancer, who had the best outcomes in terms of ameliorating anxiety and improving mood, that the best outcomes were associated with those subjects who had, during the course of their often one session over many hours, had a powerful mystical level experience. They had a mystical mimetic experience, as it were, a psycho spiritual epiphany where. That seemed to propel them into a gr- the greater likelihood of sustained uh, improvement in the psychological target symptoms. Cass's work is particularly interesting to me personally because I'm a chronic pain uh, patient. Uh, I've got yeah. a, I've got a, a compressed disc disc and degenerative disc situation, which gives me a great deal of pain, and I have found that. Uh, LSD is very helpful with the pain. I've microdosed uh, quite a bit, yeah. and the microdosing can be helpful. Slightly larger doses are even more helpful, right. keeping them you know, at a dose that's functional without right. going into major psychological yeah. changes. Yeah. Um, Cass's uh, psychological mechanism, mechanism of action for why psychedelics seem to lessen pain is he called it, and it, it's a hypothesis of the attenuation of anticipation. Yes. Suggesting that individuals in chronic pain are not only struggling with the, the actual pain in the moment, they're also anticipating the pain in the future that is most assuredly to come by their own experience. And he found that the psychedelic seemed to break that cycle, and people were able to step out of that anticipatory loop and just be in the moment, at which... And, and as a result, reported significant reductions in level of pain 
and significant reductions in the need for narcotic pain medication. This is a consistent finding with CAS, with uh, Sidney Cohen, Walter Pankey, and also another great researcher from that era and kind of my personal hero and who had a big influence on my early career was Stanislav Graf, the, uh, you know, the, the Czech uh, psychiatrist who transplanted to, uh, to Maryland in the, um, the late 60s. He was actually in the U.S. on a, uh, on a uh, research fellowship for a year. During that year, the Prague Spring ended as the Soviet tanks rolled, rolled in, and he had no place to go back to. So he figured he'd stay in the U.S., which uh, turned out to be a, 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 a tremendous benefit for the uh, field of psychedelic research, given the level of productivity of Stan Groff and his, uh, and, and, and his writings, which have been voluminous and of great value. I can tell you on a personal level regarding that attenuated anxiety that um, I do have it. And when that diminishes, the anticipation of the pain diminishes, and I'm only dealing with the pain, the overall subjective experience of the pain is diminished. There's no question about it, because sort of a big component has been taken away, but I'm still left, of course, with the physiological aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. So back to your work and your famous study of 2010, uh, we want to hear a bit more about it. I know you've sure. said it so many times, but it, it, it's worth hearing about again uh, with the, with the uh, you know your end of life work. Yeah, yeah. This this is always the study I dreamed of doing. You know, I, I had um, when I was searching around looking for how I was going to direct a, a, a career. I, I, I heard Stan give a Stan Groff give a talk in New York City around 1972-73 about his uh, his clinical experience at Spring Grove, Maryland, the Maryland State Psychiatric Research Center, treating people with terminal cancer with LSD or with uh, DPT with extraordinary result. Very very moving presentation. Um, Years later, when I was again at a crossroad, I discovered his book that he wrote with Joan Halifax, his ex-wife, Human Encounters with Death, summarizing in some detail his uh, prodigious work with with dying patients. And so that was always my dream to replicate that. The opportunity rolled around in the early uh, 21st century. It really came out of some discussions I had with my colleague on the Hefter Research Institute board, David Nichols. Who uh, was uh, kind of complaining that uh, what really needed to happen in the field, which was very, very nascent at that point, was replicating some of the old studies? And I said, "Yeah, this is something I'm very interested in." We got to talking, and I realized um, I, I was sufficiently uh, motivated and inspired and empowered that I initiated the process to put together you know, all the necessary documents for uh, submission for regulatory approval, which I was able to do. We conducted our study from around 2004 to very early 2008. And um, we negotiated successfully with the FDA, the DEA, the Research Advisory Panel of California, our, our own in-house you know, IRB or Human Subjects Research Committee, was, was able to get over each hurdle not as quickly as I would have liked, but we got over it. We did a lot of negotiation with the regulatory officials and had to compromise on certain issues. But there was there was a healthy 
collegial dialogue. And I think in the end, the regulatory uh, reviewers really helped us to develop an, a, an even stronger protocol. And that was around 2009? Four. A four? Well, we published, we you published, published in, in 2010. Yeah. That yeah. was so around... We, the end of 2004, we treated our first patient. Because I remember you were on a panel that I chaired in 2011 in Oakland at a MAPS conference. Uh And I remember distinctly that the woman sitting next to you, a psychiatrist, talked about the draconian methods that the government used on her when she wanted to do some MDMA research and what they put her through for a little tiny vial. Do you remember that story where she said she had to build a room with cement walls, cement floor. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the DEA has very, very clear specifications for if, if you want to possess a schedule, one drug uh, for a research study, it has to be in, you have to get a safe with their specifications, a very heavy safe. It needs to be bolted either into the wall or the floor. It needs to be in a locked room. And that lock, that small locked room needs to be within a larger locked room they, they, to, to basically deter the likelihood of any um, any of the drug escaping the lab. Do you remember her story, how she said two armed men delivered the little tiny bottle to her? <laughs> right, and then when right. they saw her room, which was concrete walls, concrete ceiling and concrete floor, they said, no, they wouldn't give it to her. And she said, why not? And they said, because the back wall is shares a wall with another oh. building and oh. people could break through the other oh, building my. and in this wall <laughs> and come in and they made her build yeah. a, a, another wall. And then I read how times have changed where you're talking about getting along quite cordially with them and yeah. they're being helpful and it's a different uh, mentality. It's a different ballgame. But even back when I started doing Schedule 1 research, we, we did the first uh, MDMA Phase 1 study and Rick Strasman at New Mexico had just gotten permission to do his DMT study. And he had a lot of scary stories about how, you know, formidable the uh, DEA investigators would be. And, and he described to me the, uh, the things they told him, which frightened him about what, what could happen if any of the drug was diverted. My experience was these were very collegial people. They were very uh, friendly, uh, very helpful. And, um, did not at all um, try to intimidate me. What, what, what would the point of that be in any event? But uh, okay, it, why know, did I, you- I, I, I couldn't complain about how, how? Except that yeah, it took a long time. But I think that's just part. That's the nature of the beast. That's what you just have to work with. Well, that's one of your six principles, and that is learn how to navigate the regulatory obstacles. I wrote that down. Yeah, yeah. very right. important. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, why did you pick psilocybin? I mean, uh, I know why, but I'd like our listeners yeah, to know yeah. why you chose psilocybin rather than LSD. Well, or MDMA. Or MDMA. I, I think the, yeah, the, L, the LSD issue, um, you know, most research in the uh, 50s and 60s into the early 70s was with LSD. Uh, but, you know, why we chose psilocybin was over LSD. LSD lasts much longer. That's an 8 to 12-hour experience psilocybin more along the lines of four to six. So we felt, you know, eight to 12 hours would be pretty exhausting for both subject and, uh, and facilitator. So, um, and, uh, and LSD is, uh, 
It's a bit more difficult to control, a bit more likely to induce uh, anxiety or, or even paranoia. But also most important, maybe the most important issue is LSD did not, uh, psilocybin rather, did not carry the reputation of LSD. LSD was the uh, the taboo drug from the 60s. It was, uh, you know, the, the mainstream had repudiated it. It, it, it was a taboo compound where psilocybin, people hardly knew what it was. And th- therefore, the old reputation, which it had very little of, really, in the modern world, would, would not get in the way. Now, why we chose it over MDMA, which was more practically, I had considered an MDMA protocol for end of life. And in fact, I had submitted a couple of protocols that were not accepted using MDMA. But on ref- there are a couple of reasons why I felt MDMA would be not, not, as, not as good a uh, medicine as psilocybin. Uh, and MDMA is, um, uh, th- th- by in the late 90s, when we were submitting these protocols, there was a huge controversy over MDMA neurotoxicity. It was even suggested that uh, y- young people who were taking MDMA for whatever reason, that they were going to run the risk, uh, not only of having serotonergically related disorders, but even dopaminergic pathology like Parkinson's disease. I remember Remember that? It never happened. I was at Riccardi's, one of his lectures, when he gave that that, uh, misguided information. Very misguided. And, uh, you know, he published a paper which was uh, headlined around the world in the journal Science, most, you know, prestigious journal in all of science, basically saying that monkeys he had injected with what he said was MDMA had had serotonergic damage and dopaminergic damage. But then a year... Later, the, 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 he printed a retraction. It was kind of like buried on a on a on a on, a, on an inner page. It was a little box saying, "Whoops, uh, we we made a mistake. That wasn't MDMA. We injected the monkeys with. It was methamphetamine, which you'd expect to call dop- cause dopaminergic changes, even if severe enough, le- leading to Parkinson's. So a- after that that debacle, the neurotoxicity position started to weaken. And much of their research, I thought, was seriously flawed. I've written articles back back in the 90s and early 2000s critiquing the neurotoxicity model. So, uh, but, but when I was submitting these protocols, you couldn't get a fair hearing for MDMA because neurotox- the specter of neurotoxicity was this cloud hanging over the whole field. I think now, that's, another re- Charlie, one just second. Yeah. I want to comment. I think that's a great example for all of us to learn from with regard to the power of disinformation. Yeah. Because Riccardi published that back in the 80s. I was at one of his lectures. Yeah. It's 22 and 37 years ago. And the specter of the possibility still exists out there as, as a result of that one piece of disinformation. That's, that's right. No, no, he, he had, he had, uh, preclinical studies using laboratory animals. He had human studies. Up and down the line, there were severe flaws in, in, in virtually all of them. And, uh, and, and, and I actually, for, for years, I, 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 the main kind of paper I, w- I would publish would be critiques of the neurotoxicity model. And eventually it, it unraveled of, of its own accord when somehow or other there, there was this transfer of drugs 
and the wrong drug got into the wrong yeah, la- labeled yeah, bottle. Yeah. How that happened, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm sure that's that. like 40 of Putin's top people accidentally dying, accidentally right? It's just a big falling. accident. Just and a big accident. All, all yeah. toppled out no, of a window. I never trusted him about that and that yeah. supposed mistake. But I can tell you on a very personal level, I had yeah. been taking MDMA in my therapist's office in the early 80s when it was uh, legal, uh, uh, legally administered. Yeah. And I was quite taken with not only with the effect that it had on me personally, but what I saw immediately as a medicine for couples therapy. And- oh, it's it's wonderful. It, you know, it's it's wonderful for people who are alexithymic, who have, who have trouble articulating their feelings and, and has trouble facilitating healthy and therapeutic communication, like between couples who are whose relationship has hit the rocks. It, it's a marvelous drug for that. Also, I think it's a very good fit for PTSD. How, 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 however, I, I did feel that when it came to addressing end-of-life issues, that the classic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin or mescaline would be more at what's what would be of value to someone going through that experience. I think they hit deeper and hit more of an existential level. They hit more the, the getting down to the bare bones, life, life and death. And uh, so, together with Dave Nichols, we we hatched a plan to uh, to to rewrite my protocols, but but using psilocybin instead of MDMA. So I, that that's how it, we came up with psilocybin. Here in the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, some of the uh, guides are using a combination of psilocybin and MDMA. Yeah. And they're finding it very effective in the sense of they're getting the the defenses down, the heart opening up, but the mystical and the and the uh, connectedness experience of the of the uh, psilocybin. Yeah, that's an interesting model. I mean, I think also the MDMA, you know, sometimes the psilocybin, as you're getting off, you could feel some angst. Some anxiety. You could go through some rough patches. The MDMA seems <laughs> that's to, diplomatically to, to, said because yeah. some, you know some people get irpy and throw up during that period. Yeah, yeah. But the MDMA will ease, I think, ease that transition and main, and help to maintain a very positive affect throughout. It also seems to um, really consolidate the memory even stronger. I want to, and talk- I think that's an important. Yeah, you know, that's important to to have some memory of what the experience is all about, so you could work with it later in therapy or in your own meditative process or or whatever. I, I want to talk uh, some now more about your 2010, the seminal experiment, because one of the of, of the many brilliant things you did uh, is that you took the um, the room that would ordinarily look like a, a hospital room. And in so much of the early research that you see on film, it looks like a very sterile room. And, and that's bothersome to me because on the one hand, we're telling people set and setting and how important the setting is. And then we put them in a room that looks right. totally sterile. that could scare the heck out of anybody. <laughs> and what you did was you made hospital rooms look like people's homes. You said, I get you got some help from your wife on that. Uh, for well, my uh, my research, well, your associate, research associate, actually, yes, who had a good ta- a good flair for d- designing internal interior spaces. No, we had we we did start off with a, with a, a drab room on the research floor, but we uh, we transformed it. Yes, you know we we hung uh, you know colorful fabrics, uh, you know from where nor- normally the curtain around the beds go. We had stuff on the walls. 
a lot of flowers in the room. We it was once you went in there, you could see how patients were cocooned into their space with a lot of really very, very aesthetically pleasing objects around them. Very different than that old model of the uh the the, the stark uh you know, drab uh, hospital room. Yes. At the very same time, I mean, actually earlier than when you were doing this, I, I had an impact on hospitals with regard to birthing rooms and make mm. trying to make the rooms that the husbands came into look more like a home and a home yeah. delivery than just a sterile hospital room. Right. And, uh, exactly. It, it, it tr- yeah. changes the psychology dramatically. Yeah, I think set and setting can really has a role. I think many aspects of 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 medicine and and uh, and and certainly psychotherapy. Now, the model you used in that experiment, there was one therapist with the uh, person who took the uh, psilocybin, or two? two? Two. Okay, there was two, and I know Roland uh, Griffiths in John Hopkins uses two also. Right. Now, right. I've always guessed that the reason you did this had more to do with the government than reality, because in reality, we cannot offer a medicine to people that you have to hire two professionals to administer and sit with you for six to eight hours. It'll only be for the billionaires. Right. Right. It does does add a cost. We felt it would be, first of all, that that was the model often used in the 60s. So we we were looking very carefully at those models. But also having the, that second person in the room is a um, provides another safety factor, you know, to, really to, to to ensure ongoing safety. You know, what 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 if the uh, the single person in the room had to get up and go go to the bathroom? You never want to leave somebody unaccompanied in the room. I see. But what about in the it, what what are people supposed to do in the real world? Well, the real world is different. Here, we're we're, we're creating a best case scenario. I In see. the real world, there may need to be some compromises. There may, you know, but one may need a uh, a single facilitator model with a second facilitator, maybe observing through some kind of uh, vid- video hookup where they could see into the room or, or where they could be called in. Well, yeah, you know, people got to go. People have to go to the restroom periodically. Right. Someone needs to come into the room behind them. But we also felt ideally having two people in the room really just created great, greater kind of depth and, and strength of the uh, therapeutic presence. Well, certainly if it's a male-female team, then it creates a kind of family parental kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a traditional model. Now, in today's world, you, you know, there's kind of gender fluidity and with some subjects, they may have a preference for two female or two male or, or, or what have you. So I, I think in today's world, you try to oblige that. But the standard go-to model is a male facilitator partnered up with a female facilitator. Is the holy grail of psychedelic substances to come up with molecules that will have the same effect but will last for shorter periods of time well, I mean, where, 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 what's your thinking on the length of yeah. time involved and how important I, is that for the experience? So, so I mean, there's a lot of interest in DMT, maybe even more so in 5-MeO DMT, which are very, very short acting by comparison. <laughs> but, but, you know, my experience is it's kind of like being shot out of a cannon. And by the time you realize where you are, you're, you're already coming back. I think a lot of the value of the psychedelic experience is being able to to learn how to navigate that interior terrain 
at psychic terrain, yes. be able to look around, being able to understand what's going on. Remember, this is an opportunity to ask questions and then to be receptive for what the answers are. This all takes time. And I think the four to six hour experience is optimal and far more likely to yield the kind of therapeutic outcome you're looking for compared to a uh, 15, 20 minute uh, oh, cannon shot. I wasn't meaning that's, to, that's com- no, I wasn't meaning at all to compare it to quickies like MEO and DMT, because yeah. for me, I find those experiences to be like Coney Island, but I don't get to bring yeah. in, and I don't get to bring any goodies back. Whereas a <laughs> psilocybin experience is like going into right. a gold mine. I bring out the nuggets and I can work on them for the next months and so on. Right, right. So, so, so you're asking, is there like a one or two hour? Yeah, something yeah. that maybe two wow. hours or three hours. But I think, I think the six to eight hour model, it, it's off putting for a lot of people in terms of the yeah. length of yeah. time. I think so, by so the way, more. I find yeah. with LSD, which happens to be my favorite of all the psychedelics, that when I get out to the seventh and eighth hours, it starts to feel a bit relentless. It's sort of like, yeah. you know, I think I'd like to rest. <laughs> you know, Dave Nichols, who's really one of the most uh, esteemed chemists in this area in the country, has an interesting theory. Evidently, at around approximately hour eight, LSD uh, spins off a metabolite. I think it's 11-hydroxy LSD, which is anxiogenic. It causes anxiety. So if you find a consistent experience at around hour seven or eight of feeling some am- amplification of anxiety, it may have to do with that uh, that metabolite of LSD. Thank you for that. You know, I thought it was more the amount of time, and it's like, okay, I've learned well, my lesson. I've got it, it, plenty of stuff. I can work now. I don't need any more. Teacher. <laughs> enough already. Teacher, enough already. Enough already, teacher. Eight Give hours you. is enough. <laughs> right, exactly. I see. So what you're saying is, that that uh, what is it? Eleven hydroxy. I think it's eleven hydroxy LSD. So what that would indicate is that at about the sixth or seventh hour, one might take something else to smoothen out that uh, deceleration, so you get a a soft landing rather than a well, jump. Possibly, possibly very, just to, to, to very calm, calm that experience very down. Interesting. Yeah. Now, but, are you are you satisfied? With what's going on now, with regard of uh, to uh, end of life work with uh, with psilocybin. Well, let's see. After we did our study, uh, two groups on the East Coast did similar studies. Uh, the group at NYU, we actually gave them our protocol. They they copied it, but they got they got permission for it for a for a higher a higher dose. And then Hopkins got permission for a higher yet dose, but they had their own uh, protocol, their own methodology. Uh, NYU uses the same placebo. We use Hopkins, use a different model altogether. They both had very good uh, outcomes. They, they both, that both of their studies have gotten a lot of positive attention. Subsequently, subsequent to that, there was another study at UCSF with Brian Anderson looking at the use of a psilocybin treatment model with uh, uh, people with chronic HIV who had survived. These are people who've lost much of their community, have a lot of survival guilt, had a lot had a lot of lingering depression. So they were kind of psychologically very beaten down, but they had survived. So that's what that study was geared for. And they had very good outcomes as well. Now, currently what we're doing, I'm working with Brian Anderson at UCSF, uh, Tony Bosses at NYU, and also Alicia Danforth, who's worked with me closely on other studies. 
we, we, we are we're putting together a large multi-site study that'll take place at uh, probably five, maybe six sites across the country that will use a psilocybin treatment model. We'll have our standard research method, you know, placebo-controlled, double-blind methodology, and um, and hope to treat uh, over over a hundred subjects, and perhaps using psilocybin as the uh, the, the medicinal agent, ho- hoping to get uh, sufficient um, positive outcome and ensure safety to, to to the degree that it'll allow for a greater opening of this field, including greater access of uh, people who are not necessarily in a rigorous research study, but who let's say, are approaching the end of their lives who might potentially benefit and hopefully will provide sufficient information that could allow the regulatory agencies to approve a a, a more open policy. What kind of subjects will you be using in that large study, Charlie? Subjects, yeah. Th- these are individuals with, um, uh, with advanced stage medical illness. Cancer, but not limited to cancer, could also be... Um, uh, other other conditions as well. <clears throat> as long as it, as long as the, um, the 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 prognosis is limited to two years or less. Now, when you're gathering subjects for a study like that, and it's end of life, a, a very high percentage of your subjects are going to be older. They're going to be more. Right. They're in their seventies and perhaps eighties. Right. Is that correct? Right, right, yeah, and right, then absolutely. I've now I've noticed in your published work where you make it very clear that diastolic and systolic blood pressure stays within reasonable bounds. Right, for the dose we use, we had a moderate dose. We we had, we didn't have any problem with uh, you know blood pressure regulation. But you're right, as one ages one's blood pressure regulation becomes more uh, more sensitive. Well, I, more, I asked yeah. Tony Bosis about this, and he said they set parameters for what would be reasonable spikes in, uh, in systolic pressure, and none of their subjects came outside those parameters and right. needed to be medicated because right. they were prepared to medicate them and drop right. the blood pressure. He said it just didn't happen. Didn't happen. It didn't happen with us either. I know. So now, what? What? One. One. One outcome of this is that we we are raising the up the upper. Actually, we're eliminating the upper age limit. Psychedelic research for a very long time was playing it safe. And, and basically excluding subjects over 60 or 65 or perhaps 70. For the, for the modern studies, we're taking all comers as long as they fit the overall criteria. So an 80- It will not be excluded by, by, by age. Well, I'm glad you're not ageist in that yeah. regard. So an yeah. 84-year-old like myself could be- No, uh, no, you, that, that, you know, there may be other reasons, but not, not, not by age in and of itself. And I think there's also a greater- Need to investigate safety parameters in individuals who who are older who might be at greater risk. This is a population that might be very interested in having a psychedelic experience as they're approaching the final stages of their life. But um, fair enough. Now, yeah. what about the relationship between uh, psilocybin? And AFib. For you listeners, AFib is when your heart yeah. goes out of a normal rhythm and it starts doing other things. Well, that, 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 that's a concern. Will, will the AFib 
you know, will say, so, so the classic psychedelics, you know, you know, they primarily affect the 5-HT2A subreceptor, but there are other subreceptors as well. They affect like the 5-HT2B and there, those receptors amongst other places are, are on heart valves and they're involved in maintaining the, the uh, structural in- integrity and functional integrity of heart valves. Yes. Because if there's a damaged valve, there's more, more of a risk for congestive heart failure, but also for serious arrhythmias. So where, um, you know, where we're going to be monitoring those cases very carefully and, you know, ready to intervene. Hopefully there won't be necessity to intervene, but I think we need to understand to a greater degree, what are the relative risks? I did hear of a case a couple of years ago out in the community, not a research case, but the case of a 74-year-old man who had never uh, purportedly taken a psychedelic. He, He had said he was in good health. As far as his doctor knew, he was in good health, but they may not have rigorously looked for an underlying arrhythmia. And in any event, the guy wanted, you know, read some of the popular books out, decided it was time for him to try a psychedelic, even though he somehow made it through the 60s without ever having done a psychedelic. So he, t- he, took, he took a psychedelic and, um, and within, and he did it with a, uh, someone who came well-recommended as a facilitator who gave him mushrooms, a moderate, uh, moderate high dose of mushrooms. Within an hour or so, he had, uh, he had expired. And my, you know, the, the, the autopsy report just showed a uh, cardiac arrest. My guess was he had an, some underlying arrhythmias, quite possibly AFib, which were triggered to go into um, you, you, a ventricular attack, a ventricular fib, you know, with, with, with the, the psilocybin. So it, it kind of draws home the point that we really don't know a lot about the uh, range of effect on cardiac function, particularly in people who have underlying vulnerabilities, which you're more likely to find in people who are a, a little further down the age spectrum. In those six principles that you put forth that I keep uh, quoting, your number one is optimize safety. Yeah, yeah. Optimize safety, optimize ethics as well. If we, I think the, the, the capacity of this field to continue and be successful will, 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 will rise or fall with, with our ability to establish and maintain strong safety parameters. I'm gonna, I, I think that's critical. I'm going to take a moment here and read Charlie Grobe's uh, six principles. He doesn't call them six principles, but uh, but but I call them I call them Charlie Grove six principles. One okay. is to optimize safety. The other, implement the lessons of the past, and we've been talking about that. Right, right. Strengthen ethical standards. He just right. mentioned that. Absolutely. Report on the need for greater diversity. Well, let's come back to that. Navigate regulatory obstacles. We've talked a bit about that. Right. And, of course, ascending funding options carefully. I want to talk to you about the the diversity and the funding options. Those are two important topics. Please elaborate. Sure, sure. So with diversity, if if you look back on subject populations, they're primarily middle class, upper middle class Caucasians. And we, 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 as with all research, we need to get data from different socioeconomic strata and from people with um, 
you know, different uh, racial backgrounds. So there is a need to diversify our patient populations, but there's also a need to get greater involvement in the field as uh, amongst the professional staff, including the leadership. We need more women. Most investigators over the last, you know, since since the 50s, there've been a few women, but for the most part, they're male, for the almost entirely Caucasian. Uh, we, we need to get women involved in the field, but also as uh, taking leadership roles. And um, we, we need people of color. It, it just just because that's how, where our society is moving and uh, it, the field calls calls for that and could benefit. Um, I think we also need a stronger connection with um, uh, people who descend from indigenous uh, tribal people who may have some, you, you know, within group, with, 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 within culture, co- collective knowledge that, that might be of great value. Yes, yes. And the last one on your list was um, the importance of looking over your funding options. Yeah. Uh, and, and I took particular note of that because there's a lot of concern right now about who's going to control these medicines, what kind of profits are going to be made, whether the average person, et cetera. And that relates to funding. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very, very important issue and an area that I, I, I'm also very concerned about. You know, traditionally, we, we've been seeking out philanthropic funding. And, we've, and periodically, someone comes along who's very generous and really helps us move our studies forward. Um, but very often, we're running this, we were running the studies on a shoestring. In more recent years, there's been the, the, the arrival of for-profit companies that want to extract um, profit, extract gain from, from running these studies. And I do have a lot of concern there. You know, the, these, the, the for-profits are going to be primarily interested and motivated to enhance return on investments for investigators. And they might be less uh, attentive to uh, optimizing uh, safety parameters, which includes the one versus two people in the room. You know, if it all it takes to get that second person in the room, which is another, I think, protective safety factor is, is, is funding, then we want that funding. We don't want funding pulled away from optimizing the, uh, the, 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 the treatment model. There's also the issue among the for-profits of uh, taking out uh, sketchy patents or attempting applying for patents that may really not be sufficiently novel and unique enough to merit patent protection. But in our legal system, you know, a- anything can happen. So that's a worry. And that's a, uh, an inroad where monopolies might be, might be created. There's also the taking out use patents where, you know, putting that, where identifying putting a reassuring hand on someone's shoulder, if they're anxious, could be patent protected. That's absurd. That's the model that's that was utilized going back to the very start of this work in the 50s, and I'm sure on on, on many levels was was present in, uh, in, in in indigenous tribal settings as well as uh, mestizo settings where it's they're often used for healing purposes. So uh, I have a lot of concern about this. There was an you know a couple of years ago the for profits uh, were were 
becoming very active, seeking out investment. And there were estimates at that time that these that some of these companies were evaluated at well over a billion dollars. And I thought that was horrifying, really, that um, that they they would be worth so much money and that they would be um, could conceivably be in a position where they would um, basically take over the field, monopolize activity in the field, and in so doing, extract considerable profit for themselves and their investors. What we really need, honestly, I think, is for the government to step in and uh, create funding mechanisms and uh, really oversight to make sure optimal safety parameters are, 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 are utilized. But the government has been very, very hesitant, or the funding elements of the government, very hesitant to get involved. And it was only in the last year or so that uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, approved its first treat, psychedelic treatment study ever. And that was a study, that's a study at Hopkins with Matthew Johnson extending his work utilizing a psilocybin treatment model for cigarette cessation. And he came out, had come up with very good preliminary data and the government, NIDA says, okay, extend your work and here's some money to help you do it. And then NIMH in the last uh, year or two, for the first time, I think going back to the early 70s, has agreed to fund a, a, uh, a treatment study using a psilocybin model for the treatment of um, a chronic refractory obsessive compulsive disorder. Again, there had been some encouraging preliminary research. So a group at Yale, which submitted a, uh, a, a, a research grant application, received a, uh, a very uh, a generous award to carry out that work. Again, is that, is that work at, excuse me for interrupting, is that work at Yale on OCD? Yes, yeah, that's Ben Calmendi is the... Uh, I'm writing the, it down. The, ben, yeah. how do you spell that? Calmendi with a K, K-A-L-M-E-N-D-I. I think that's and then And before you mentioned Yale, you mentioned another study with... Uh, o- Johns Hopkins. On, on OCD? No, no, Johns Hopkins doing the cigarette cessation Oh, that I know. Study. The other Francis, early, what about this guy Francisco Marino? Is he still? Yeah, he's the one. Yeah, in Arizona, he had done the first uh, re-examination of the utility of a psilocybin model to treat uh, OCD, and he found a signal for positive outcome, meaning amelioration of the OCD symptoms that sustain over time, even significantly after the, the drug is, you know, taken and now it's left the, left the system. So uh, yeah, and he. You know, I believe the Arizona group had been putting together a new study. I'm not sure what happened to it, but now the the Yale people are stepping up and uh, I think le- leading the way with the, with the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. Thank there you. had been some good work in the 60s looking at OCD. Right. You know, again, one of the hardest areas in psychiatry and psychology to treat. And I think some Scandinavian investigators in the 60s had had reported on some very positive outcomes with using what substance? They were using LSD. You don't re- do you recall a name? No, L- 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 LSD. Yes. Do you recall a name of any of those scientists? It might have one of them may have been Ling L I N G. I don't have to look. A good source book for in, for information for research from the fifties uh, and sixties is Lester Grinspoon's oh. Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered. It's a classic, very valuable if you really want to peruse the, 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 the history 
that started really with Hoffman's discovery in 43, extended to the early Swiss work in the late 40s, and then they're, they're informing colleagues around Europe and in the United States of uh, this new experimental drug, which they were encouraging other investigators to, uh, to, to examine. So you think Lester might have mentioned some of those early OCD studies? In yeah, his- yeah, yeah, I bet he did. That would be the place to find them. Okay, we're going to switch topics now. As you know, there's a proliferation of people around the United States who are referring to themselves as guides or psychedelic coaches. Uh And these aren't people who are necessarily trained in psychiatry or psychology or even uh, master's level uh, MFCC uh, uh, marital counselors, but they're people who have learned about psychedelics from some other way. Right. or some kind of training course that's offered online, uh, et cetera. And they're basically practicing psychedelic psychotherapy. You're familiar with what I, you know exactly what I'm sure. talking about. Sure, no, I know exactly. And uh, I would, I'd like to know your sentiments about this. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of mixed views. On, on the one hand, I, 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 you know, I've, I've met, I know some facilitators who, who don't have much in the way of uh, degrees and uh advanced training who, who are quite capable. But my my views, I tend to veer a bit towards the uh, the, the, the conservative, you know, a, um, what is it? Uh, there's this famous quote, a, a, uh, a, a I think it may, maybe Renata Adler, a, a, a radical mind with a conservative position is the only place where the center holds. I always <laughs> like that. Beautifully <laughs> said. I see myself kind of like that. Um, I, I think to play, you know, at this point, as this as this field starts to evolve and elaborate on itself, I think it's very, very important that we do whatever we can to maintain the highest levels uh, for uh, for safety and for um, and, and just for general ability. And I think the advantage of a a trained health professional, a trained mental health professional is we have seen a lot of psychopathology and we're and if we're if we're paying attention we get good at identifying it when we see it and this may come in very valuable when you're screening subjects because you know you don't you you don't want to allow people with severe access to pathology severe personality disorders uh, in, in, into these studies because of the re- the relative risk. You know, I, I, I think the more, the greater clinical background one has, the more likely one can ensure safety. Um, okay. So that I kind of, again, line up somewhat conservative, but I see at this point in time, uh, you know, I, I, I feel we need people with clinical licensure. Also, when you have a, a license, you've got skin in the game. That's so right. So if you... If you mess up, if you take liberties with a subject, if you violate important critical boundaries, you, you may have to yeah. pay a price. Right. There's a terrible case in Canada a couple of years ago where an individual who was not licensed committed some serious ethical breaches. But if you, you know, he didn't have a license, there was nothing much to lose other than what he may get hit with in a uh, civil case. But, you know, if he ain't got nothing, he got nothing to lose. But it doesn't kind of work 
here. I, yeah. I, I think uh, you know, facilitators need to understand there are certain behaviors which are out of bounds, which are you know they, they cannot engage in. And if they knew in the back of their minds that uh, uh, breaking the rules could lead to losing one's uh, livelihood, losing one's uh, license to practice, that might be a, an added deterrent. Yeah. As we're talking about safety, I'd like to segue and please tell us some stories, some really honest stories. They may be hard to hear of adverse effects that you've that you know of directly yeah. or that you've heard of. Sure. Well, I mean, again, again the, um, the the sudden presumed cardiac death of the 74 year old man that I heard of a couple of years ago, his daughters actually wrote a letter and were sending around to some of the investigators because they felt there was there was a need to alert the community. So, so okay. So we had one, but it's not certain whether it was the medicine well, or whether yeah. it was underlying. And, there, uh, and I've heard of some over the years other cases with some with MDMA, some of the classic hallucinogens, where individuals. Um, you know, I, I know one case of of a uh, a couple who were the, the the methodology of the facilitator was they would go into separate rooms, do individual work with each with their own facilitator, and then come back and. And do some work together. And uh, when they were separated, what what one of the couple expired again? Presumably a cardiac death, but it was um, it was well, you know there there was never any formal. Uh, what, what were they taking? What what medicine had? They... I believe it was MDMA. Yeah. Okay. I believe it was MDMA. But, uh, what about uh, these? Are both physiological? The man in seventy four right. died. This person died. Right. We don't know what their underlying condition was. What about uh, emotional, negative, uh, adverse sure. emotional effects? Sure. What can you tell us? Well, uh, let's see. Um, I've had people tell me who, and often there were people with prior histories of uh, PTSD, and uh, told me that something had happened during a recent session which had re, re, re-triggered the old underlying trauma and had exacerbated their, their, their underlying condition. So that would be one problem that, uh, you know, people can be traumatized during sessions. And if they have a a prior history of trauma, they might even be more more vulnerable. Uh, Other individuals. um, Prior history of trauma. Well, that relates to a case that I know of where a person went to a a guide. I'm not sure at what level, but uh, uh, and uh, had MDMA. And had a very positive experience on the one hand of illumination, but also felt that his anxiety increased markedly after the uh, experience. So it was sort of a mixed reaction, very good and very not good. Yeah. Well, I know a similar case of a, a middle-aged woman who, who, who I know socially who came to me a few months ago just to tell me that she had... She had never taken a psychedelic, but had been kind of inspired by some of the books out there, particularly Michael Pollan's book, to, to try it. She found a facilitator. The, the session went well. It, it opened up a lot of old memories that had been repressed. But afterwards, she felt she was in a sustained panic episode for quite some time, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fearfulness. It and I, I, I eventually referred her to someone who did uh, integrative work simply to help her to process what she had gone through and help her to understand what had, might have been so 
um, traumatizing about some of the old repressed memories that came up. And I saw this woman the other day. She gave me a big hug and said, I'm all better now with so-and-so you refer me to. I've worked through these blocks and I've worked through all of that angst that was uh, th- that was freezing me up. And I'm, I- I'm so much better now. So that was a, a good outcome, but uh, she really had to work for it. One of the things that I'm putting forth to people, and I'd like to hear your reaction to, is I'm I'm telling them to relate to their psychedelic experience, the day of the experience, like going into a gold mine, a personal gold mine, and they come out of the experience with nuggets. And then the work really continues as they polish up the different nuggets. And yeah. the polishing process can take weeks, months, or even longer, oh, depending on how much, how many nuggets and how big the nuggets right. were that they took out. Right, that's right. Oh, absolutely. The 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 uh, the, the, the uh, dazzling jewels. Yes. You know when when the Spaniards hundreds of years ago would be going off looking for the lost city of gold that they heard from the indigenous people. It, it was it wasn't it wasn't concrete. You know, gold as we would imagine gold it was the inner gold from you know probably the native peoples were reflecting on these powerful experiences where they saw palaces laid, laden with uh with with emeralds and uh colors you know, say, say, be, be, and be, you know but it was not uh not not literal yeah, you, you, yeah. The gold that could be traded on the market make these people rich they, they they never quite found what they were looking for in that regard. What they did find, they didn't recognize, and they ignored it, or they vilified it. I just saw a note I made here to ask you about. Do you, do you know something about a Swiss scientist named Peter Gasser? Oh, Peter Gasser, sure, sure. What, what, sure. what can he, you tell us about his work? I don't know much about his yeah, work. Yeah, he's from Sulatern, just at the foot of the, foot of the, the, the Ural Mountains. Um, he, he, he did um, a... He, he did a study with uh, end end of life uh, patients. I believe ah, he used LS, LS, LSD. People approaching the end of life. Uh huh. He got, he had some good data, as as I recall. So, so I think that was the the LSD. So it was funded by Maps, as I recall. Oh, he was okay. That's easy yeah. to find. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've met with him a couple of times in Europe. Nice guy, very modest, unassuming, but good guy. We're going to take a pause now. I'm going to offer you a pause, and I'm going to do a commercial of sorts. And while I'm doing that, I'd like you to think about what else you might want to add before we stop for our listeners. And while you're thinking about that, I will say that uh, I'd appreciate it very much if you'd go to our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and uh, feel free to listen to the archives. There's no fee. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe. I'm not sure exactly what subscribe means, but it'll be obvious when you go to the website and it helps our work uh, because we are self-funded. And um, I'd like you to take a look at my two books, um, Psychedelic Wisdom, which just came out, in which uh, we tell the story of uh, uh, interviews with 20 uh, prominent people who tell this their elders, and they tell the story of 40 and 50 years of sub rosa experimentation, some very solitary where they were afraid to tell anyone uh, because they might lose their position at a university. 
others where they talked openly about it for many years. One man, a doctor in Wisconsin, took LSD 900 times. Quite an interesting thing just to listen to that alone. Uh, The other book, Psychedelic Medicine, in which uh, Charlie Grobe appears, which came out in 2017, which are a book about the scientists. What do they have to report honestly? What did Charlie Grobe report in that year? Dave Nichols, uh, Stanislav Groff, and many others. Roland Griffiths is in there as well. I think you'd like to look at those two books. Um, Back to Charlie. What might you want to add before we end? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a great lover of history. I mean, that was my... My first goal on <laughs> school, I was, I was going to be a, a history professor someplace. That, that didn't happen. But I love reading about the history of psychedelics. And, and it also reminds me of a quote by the, uh, the American philosopher George Santayana, who once said, um, it's, it, it, it is important to learn from, from, from the mistakes of the past, let, lest we repeat them. So I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, from our predecessors, from the early researchers starting in the 50s. I I, I established great friendships with some of the early researchers, Gary Fisher, Ralph Metzler, one of my best friends ever, who sadly passed away several years ago, who I learned a great deal about these compounds and how to optimally administer them. These are very, very important teachers that, that I found who I feel still instruct me. Through, through reading their material, listening to audio tapes, reflecting on, on, on my memories. And also, we need to learn from what did the indigenous people, how did they conceptualize these compounds? They're the, they were the original authorities. They had remarkable familiarity with these compounds. you, you got to figure they, they would have gotten to understand intimately all of the, the plant life in the region they lived in. They'd understand what would nutritious plants be, what were the toxic plants and what were the visionary plants or what visionary plants, which would be inactive alone if you combined together and, and brewed them in a lengthy process like ayahuasca, that they might yield a, a profound visionary outcome result. So, um, and how did these, how did these indigenous, the so-called primitives who were not at all primitive, they were far more evolved and advanced than we are still are with many of these compounds. How, how did they conceptualize what, what, what these plants meant? How, how, what sense did they make of their visions? How did they utilize them? How did they optimize safety? What, what can we learn from, from those who came before? And, and look, at the end of the day, I, I simply feel I'm, a, uh, I'm part of a process of, of, of taking, taking the staff or taking the torch from those who preceded me, like like people in Ralph's generation, Ralph Mester's generation, Gary Fisher's generation, t- t- taking that 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 torch and holding it aloft, keeping it safe, and be ready to pass on to the young guys coming coming behind me, of, of who are I've met quite a number. These are very very impressive younger people, very knowledgeable, very committed, uh, and very honorable people and who are dedicated to really continuing the mission that our predecessors started, passed down to us, and we're passing down to them. And in so doing, and then, then the great the great question of all time, could these plants, could these compounds help help us salvage this world with all of the horrific environmental uh, you, you know crises looming 
could, could, could it open our eyes? Could it wake us up to the point where we're able to take the kind of definitive action that, that, could, that, that could begin to turn the tide? That's going to be critical if there's going to be any really life on this planet at all. And one thing I found when I was in Brazil, in the, I was there in the early 90s and then in the early 2000s writing some ayahuasca study. I was impressed with the people I met in the ayahuasca uh, religion, the Unyada Vegetal, the Udeve, how many were environmental activists, like you know, taking these plants, taking it in the context of, of this remarkable rainforest, they, they had vast opportunity to commune with the, the spirits of nature. And it's like, what did they learn? What messages did they receive? And how might they inform us in our moving forward to try to you know, heal and, and protect and, and, and really and, and salvage this, this beautiful planet for our children and our grandchildren and those that follow them? That's beautifully said. The only thing I would add to it, Charlie, is that I would hope that the psychedelics also teach us to be kinder to one another. Because, exactly. because so much of the history of our species is a history of warfare and of killing one another. Right. And as we extract from the earth, we're extracting from each other and people are getting killed at this very moment as we sit here. Right. And we sit here in gratitude that we're both here together and able to right. have this conversation. And I, and, and I thank you very much for taking the time of your life to be with us today here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. When you talk about your interest in history, I want to tell our listeners that Charlie Grobe is a historical figure. As I told you at the beginning of the program, I consider him definitely one of the founding fathers of the psychedelic revolution. He likes to go back much further in time than himself. I understand that. So maybe better to use his picture, which is he's bringing forth the torch. He picked it up and he's carrying it forward. And for that, we all thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you, Richard. Really, really wonderful to see you again. And, and, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. See you in, soon uh, in, Denver. in Denver. And for all great. you gentle listeners, thank you for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 9, as we have for the past 20 years, but also that you can now <laughs> listen to any of the programs on the archive, anywhere you are, on your phone, in your car, or elsewhere. So check in with us. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.